Okay, I want to begin this morning basically by just saying that in terms of our culture, in terms of trying to analyze and understand our culture, that we are a culture, really, that is obsessed with uh, glory, obsessed with greatness. Uh, maybe to put it in modern day American terms, we want supersize everything. Alright? We just want supersize everything. And we're obsessed with it. You know, it's like 2.0, 3.0, 4. And we are always looking for updates, for upgrades, the next latest thing. You know, I mean, this week, uh, Blackberry's coming out. Right? And you guys tech weird people like me. Alright? Blackberry's coming out with their touch screen rival to the iPhone. And it's just like all this buzz that's been building up, you know, by all the geek websites. It's like, it's going to kill the iPhone. I don't think so, but that's what they say anyhow. But the point is, is that we are a culture that really is obsessed with bigger, better, great. And the problem is, is what's happened is that in a lot of ways is translated even into the church. The church has become sort of like that. We think of our lives as being deserving of bigger, better, and really... Some theologians in the past have kind of identified this problem as being like the glory story. Alright? If you're familiar at all with health and wealth gospel or prosperity teaching, bottom line is, that's the gist of it. Is that you can have the best life right here, right now. You don't have to suffer. Life can be glorious. You can have everything you want. A big house, a well-paying job, lots of sex with your spouse, a dog, a nice white fence around your house, mortgage-free, everything is just wonderful, if you trust God, right? That's, that's the mentality that a lot of people carry, a lot of people think, a lot of Christians sort of tend to believe. The problem is, is that in reality it stands completely contrary to the gospel itself, alright? So what happens is, the gospel that basically gets communicated in today's world is things that really pertain to you, how you can have a better life now, how your life can be uh, made glorious, how you can go from, you know, bad state to better state, or even just sort of a good state to a better state. And the mentality is this. Salvation comes through or by you actualizing your potential. Right? In the Christian world, it goes like this. I mean, that's, that's Oprah's mentality, is that you can actualize your potential and you will have the abilities and the tools needed to better yourself, to self-actualize your life. In the church, it goes like this. Jesus will help you have a better sex life. Jesus will help you have a better life, period. Jesus will teach you how to get out of debt. Jesus will help you to have a better, you know, environment, you can become a better cook, you can become a better student, all of these things. So what happens is this, the gospel no longer becomes good news, but rather it gets sort of translated into good advice. It's the means to help you. Jesus becomes marginalized, right? I mean, you're a good person, but you can do better if you had Jesus. He's just an addition to your life. Take this pill, you'll do better. Right? And and that's what happens. We have this culture that really is obsessed with glory, with power. The problem is, is that we try to avoid at all costs the cross. And here's the deal. In terms of observing this and analyzing this, there is a theologian by the name of uh, Richard Niebuhr. 
he made this statement in terms in the 50s. He was a Yale, uh, was a university professor at Yale. He made this statement in terms of uh, uh, giving a description of the modern day in his day, the liberal liberal Christianity of his day. Which, in reality, by the way, according to my perspective, the liberal Christianity of the 50s has become modern day pop evangelicalism. Okay, here's what Richard Niebuhr says. He says that a God without wrath has brought men without sin into a world without judgment through the administrations of a Christ without a cross. In other words, it's this idea that somehow life, privilege, authority, power, greatness can all be achieved just by self-actualizing it. We deserve it, in other words. And that's what happens in this mentality. What it does, you've got you to get where I'm going with this, what it does is it removes the biblical angle on it, which is this. We are guilty, we stand judged, we stand condemned before a holy God because we have sinned, we have turned our backs upon a holy God, we have committed treason, we've turned our backs upon the King of all kings, We've gone out upon our own way. We've taken upon our own lives and our own hands. We've become the masters of our own destiny. And what's happened is it's completely removed this need for what the Bible describes as a Savior. Okay? So what we're going to look at here today is what I'm just going to call in this series the Incarnation, which is Jesus entering into our world for the purpose of saving us, for the purpose of rescuing us. Here's a quick little recap of everything that we've looked at so far. First of all, we looked at the Trinity. We saw how God is one and He's complete in and of Himself. Secondly, we saw how this God, who is one, Trinitarian, and, and complete in Himself, He reveals Himself because He's a good God. He's a loving God. He wants to speak for who He is, so He speaks He reveals to us who He is. Uh, Thirdly, we saw the creation, that God, in His goodness, creates all things. He didn't have to create this world in which we live in. He didn't have to create solar systems. He didn't have to create plasma. He didn't have to create molecules. He didn't have to create light. He didn't have to create any of this. You, your dog, or your cat. He didn't have to, but He did. Because He's a really good God. We also saw after that, God created humanity created us very unique. We're not quite animals, nor are we God. Somewhere right in the middle. We're very unique. And the entire scope of all of God's creation, we're human, made in the image of God. But we also saw how out of that, mankind literally chose to fall. We had a representative for us in the garden. His name was Adam, right? And his wife Eve. They represented us. They were our team captain, and they did exactly what you and I would have done, given the same circumstances, they fell, right? And what that brought about in terms of the fall was God's reaction, which was judgment in the immediate, whereby God booted them out of the garden, they were not granted access to the tree of life, and then what happens out of that we saw last week is that God responds in another way in that God pursues. We saw covenant. That God 
throughout history, has, throughout the Bible, has demonstrated himself as a God that not only reacts or responds by judgment, God will judge, but he's also a God that is so rich in mercy, so full of grace, that he responds by chasing us. Not necessarily for the purpose of destruction, but for the purpose of covenant. That God wants to redeem and restore and renew broken fellowship. That's the God that we have. He's a God of covenant. He's a God that pursues. So today what we're going to be taking a look at, how that all of this was literally realized through what we're going to call the incarnation. That God literally clothes himself in humanity. In flesh, just like you and I. He becomes a man. He becomes what he created, enters into our world, into our culture, experiences the same things that we experience from temptation all the way to joys, all the way to the euphoria of watching a beautiful sunset, just wishing, I wish this could never end, right? I mean, just all of the same emotions and experiences that we go through, Jesus did. And the reason why He did this, what we're going to take a look at today, ultimately is for the purpose of rescue. Jesus enters into our world to rescue Sinners from the fall. It's a beautiful story. Alright, that's what we're going to be taking a look at here today. So one of the things I want to first begin by, as we've been doing throughout this whole series, is just kind of asking a series of questions and trying to answer them. So the first question I want to ask really is this. What is the incarnation? I want to give you a good Bible definition of this. So I'll just let John, uh, one of Jesus' best friends, describe it himself. He says this in John chapter 1. Uh, actually, it can start a little bit before that. John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then later on, uh, he goes on to say in verse 14, And the Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. So in other words, the Word that he's, a re- he's referring to is Jesus. He was God. Right? He was with God. And He created all things. So the point that he's making is that Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, or Second, depending on how you want to look at it, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus, part of the Trinity, He basically was in the beginning with God, created all things with God, is God, and Jesus, by verse 14, comes into our world, takes upon Himself human flesh, dwells among us. And so the point that John is making in terms of the incarnation, the word incarnation literally means to make manifest, to become in the flesh. The word carne, any uh, Latin, you know, Latin understanders or Spanish speaking, what does carne mean? Meat, right? Carne asada. Right? Carne. That's what meat, it's the word carne literally means meat. So the point that John is making is that Jesus becomes meat in the sense of flesh. Human flesh takes upon himself the same stuff you and I are made out of. He incarnates. God who is spirit, God who has no body, God who has no physical properties in and of himself, literally becomes what he created, which is something with physical property. Human form. Incarnation. That's what we mean. And it says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus comes into this world, and He literally becomes a human being. Now, I want to continue to kind of 
build on this and to try to understand this as we look at this in terms of what is the incarnation, what we also mean is this, is that he has two natures, two natures. It's important to understand this. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about Jesus who happens to have two natures. Now, this is very unique, right? Not many of you guys have two natures, all right? We're human beings and that's it. Jesus in this world had two natures. So what this means is that not only was he fully God, but he was also fully man. It's very important to understand this. Fully God, fully man. This concept of the Trinity really plays into all this. It's important to understand this. I think it was J.I. Packer who had written this. He said the Trinity declares that the man Jesus is divine. And the incarnation declares that the divine Jesus is human. Okay? The Trinity declares that the man Jesus is divine, and the incarnation declares that the God Jesus is man. Okay? So the point is, is the way scholars and theologians have understood this, is that Jesus is both God and man at the same time in one human body. Okay? That's important to understand this, because what had happened shortly after Christianity sort of burst upon the scene, there were many people that were coming along trying to understand the nature of Jesus. Who was He? You know, and there's all sorts of uh, heresies and false teachings that had arisen about this that actually still in many ways bleed over into our day and age. Things such as, well, maybe Jesus was really only a man and that just prior to dying, the Spirit of God came upon Him and He became God for just a brief moment. So He lived as a man died as God for just a brief moment, but then went back to being man. All right? There are other pictures or concepts or ideas that maybe Jesus was actually God all the way along, but he was never really man, never really lived in a body. And in other words, it's sort of this idea that maybe Jesus had sort of a phantom body. He was kind of a spirit. He looked like uh, he had a physical body, but he really wasn't. Right? Really wasn't. Uh, he was just... Like on the Anderson Cooper show. He was just a hologram. See that? Nobody saw that. Alright, I was the only one that saw that. Alright, anyways, he was just some sort of like a phantom being that when he walked, no one ever really knew that he was actually a real physical being. They just, they assumed he was a real physical being, but he wasn't. Now John, in the little epistle of 1 John, later on talks about this. He says that if anybody denies that Jesus came in the flesh, what does he say? He's an antichrist. So this is important to understand because if you're like, ah, they don't make no big a deal, right? Who cares what people think about Jesus? Well, everything matters. I mean, so much that John says, if you deny that Jesus came in the flesh, you're antichrist. You're the opposite of Christ. You're, you're, you're putting yourself in the place of Christ. So this does matter. This concept of the duality or the two natures of Jesus does matter. He was fully God, fully man, and we'll get to the reasons as to why this is significant in a moment. But another thing that's important to understand in terms of this is that Jesus' incarnation also signifies the fact that His life upon this planet really was a time of humiliation. Scholars oftentimes call this the humiliation of Christ. Now this is amazing when you consider this, okay? Now I want you to think about this. There are periodic uh, snapshots, if you would, throughout the Bible of Jesus in glory. We'll give an example. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah uh, sees his vision. He sees God upon the throne. He's so in awe of this. He falls on his face as if to worship. 
Um, and it, it talks about the glory of the Lord. Many people believe that this is like a pre-incarnate state of Jesus. Now, what we mean by pre-incarnate is before made flesh. Right? Before Jesus actually took upon himself an actual physical body, Jesus always was. He always existed. Right? 2,000 years ago, God did a miracle. He steps into our time, takes upon himself human flesh and bones, lives among us, but before that, he always was. Okay? It's important to understand that. So John sees this pre-incarnate state of Jesus glorified. There's angels on the throne worshiping, or angels around the throne worshiping him, singing praise to him, singing holy, 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 choruses that are just phenomenal. I would imagine, uh, in other descriptions of the Old Testament, there were, there were colors. Like colors you can never even imagine. But think about it. You know, if life was all black and white, it'd be pretty boring. Alright? We oftentimes take color for granted. You know? I think that's why people who live in places where it's always raining want to kill themselves. There's just no color. I mean, it's lifeless. You know what I'm saying? Like something about color that just gives us life. We call it vibrancy. Right? Vibrancy is kind of the idea of life. And, and around the throne of God, there is this massive amounts of colors. I mean, you can imagine, um, audibly the sounds that were on the throne were just amazing. So what we have really before Jesus stepped into this world, we have this pre-incarnate picture of him surrounded by angels and phenomenal, phenomenal colors, uh, phenomenal sounds, all sorts of amazing things in which Jesus had engaged in prior to entering into this world. So here's the deal. Jesus comes into this world as a babe. Okay? Upgrade or downgrade? Downgrade. All right, good, good. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, okay. It is a downgrade just in case you're wondering. All right? Think it this way. Massive mansion, beautiful house with servants. All right? That's heaven. Earth, think, run down trailer park in Oklahoma. All right? All right? Jesus is in heaven, in paradise, steps into our world, downgrade. All right, downgrade. That's exactly what Jesus does. That's part of the incarnation. So think about the incarnation in terms of a downgrade for a specific purpose. Don't miss this. He doesn't step into our world just to check things out. He doesn't need to. He's got a perfect bird's eye view of everything. There's one reason why he steps in this world. We'll look at it in just a moment here. But in short, it's a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission. Jesus is on a mission from the missionary God to rescue people that have offended Him. That have earned the right of judgment. Or earned death. Okay? Don't miss that. Because if you miss that, then the concept of Jesus stepping into our world doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, nobody will honor Him and worship Him for what He did. And that's part of the Gospel. It's recognizing how great our God is that He would actually humble Himself to save us for at least deserving. Alright, so the next question I want to ask is this. What was Jesus' life like? Obviously, He comes into this world, takes upon the form of flesh and bone. What was His life like? Okay, here's a couple examples. I want to read a few of these things to you. We'll look at them in just a moment. What was Jesus' life like? Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to read you a little bit of the story here. It says this. 
Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was um, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit and her husband Joseph. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what happens is his mother, she, uh, she was uh, betrothed to Joseph. This was a very strong form of engagement. In fact, it was so strong a form of engagement that in order to actually break off the engagement would require a bill of divorcement. It's almost the same idea of being married in our culture here today. So you don't just sort of walk away from it, act as if it's no big deal. Joseph was in this relationship, covenant relationship, to be married with her. He finds out she's pregnant. All right? She's a very young girl. Some scholars believe between ages of 13 to 16 years old. And she's found with baby. All right? She's got a baby. And Joseph realizes, I ain't the dad. All right? He's saying, okay. Well, you know what? We've, this, we've never gone there before. What's going on? And so he's frustrated. In fact, in that culture you have the right to kill your wife or your betrothed wife-to-be if she is found with child that's not yours. All right? It's this, the, basically the way the culture worked. So what happened was Joseph decides to divorce her secretly. Why? Because he loved her. Do you understand that? I mean, he was a man of great honor. He could have killed her. He had every right to do it, but he doesn't. He actually says, I'm gonna, we're just gonna part, go separate ways, because I love you. I don't wanna kill you, I care too much about you. So what happens, it goes on, verse 19, it says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, but he considered these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear, take your wife, Mary, take your, take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people from their sins. And this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Verse 23 is going to be a quote from the Old Testament. Again, all of this, as we've kind of started uh, pointing out from the very beginning of this whole series, all of this, the whole story of Jesus, is a script. Okay? It's not just being done on the fly. Everything that's happening in the New Testament is literally done according to a script. Right? We call it the... Scriptures, God's the author of it. God also happens to be the main character. He wrote it all. And so literally what you're seeing, this is why all the time in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you see little statements like this. This was done to fulfill the Scriptures. It's basically some dude on the set saying, hey, just stick with the script. That's what's happening. He's like, this was done just to stick with the script. That's what's happening. So he says... Mary conceived a child from the Holy Spirit just like the script said. This is going to quote from the Old Testament, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And Joseph woke up from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, and he knew her not until she had given birth, and he called his name Jesus. So Jesus was literally born of a virgin. Does it matter whether or not Jesus is born from a virgin? Yes. Yes. Sometimes people are like, does it really matter? The answer is yes, it really does matter. Yes, it really does matter. See, what's happened is liberal scholarship came along in the 50s and started challenging this. Okay? Now you got new 
speakers today, new pastors today that are just like, does it really matter? Is it that big of a deal? Alright? Yes, it really does matter. Yes, it really is a big deal that Jesus was actually born of a virgin. Why? Because it's fulfilling a script. Okay? It's fulfilling a script. If it didn't fulfill the script or it went off the script, that's really bad. Alright? It shows that God's not sovereign. It shows that God's really not in control. God has said, I wrote the script. Everything is going to go according to plan. Jesus is born of a virgin. One of the things that we see is that Jesus started his ministry at age 30. How do we know about 30? Well, there's a couple of indications of that in the, in the uh, New Testament. But most importantly, Numbers chapter 4, verse 3 says that for a priest, when he begins his ministry, guess how old he is? 30. So if you ever wonder, like, why did Jesus live at home till he's 30? You're here, you're like, I'm going to follow Jesus' example. That's called being lazy in today's culture. Back then, it was just called being a Jewish rabbi. Alright? So Jesus says, I'm going to go and be a teacher. I'm going to be a priest. So at age 30 is when the priest basically said, we're going to begin our ministry. So you had a window from about age 30 to age 50 is what Numbers tells us. So Jesus starts his public ministry at age 30. We're also told in Matthew chapter 3 that Jesus was baptized by his cousin. Jesus goes to the wilderness. He had a, had a cousin named John the Baptist, baptizer. He was a he was a, a, a preacher of righteousness. He lived out in the wilderness. Kind of a crazy guy. But a lot of people enjoyed his ministry. They came out. They repented. It was really sort of the beginning stages of a mass revival. That was happening. Jesus goes out to his brother in Matthew chapter 3. He says, I want you to baptize me. John's a little troubled by that. He's like, you're perfect. You don't need to be baptized. As other people do. Jesus and I got to be baptized so that I can fulfill all righteousness. And this is Jesus' way of saying, Look, I'm beginning my ministry, but most importantly, I want you to understand that I'm doing my ministry as a representative. Of whom? For a new race of people. For a new race of people. Jesus is the last Adam. He is a new representative. He is the representative. And He's saying, I'm going to be identified with the people that I'm going to represent. That are going to be following after Me. This is baptizing. We're told that Jesus gathers 12 men to be disciples, and we've kind of pointed this out throughout our study in John, that this was not a unique thing. I mean, a lot of rabbis during this first century were actually gathering disciples among themselves, and they were teaching them. But what is unique is that Jesus gathers 12. Why? Jesus is starting a counter-temple movement. He's basically sending messages to the world around Him. We're starting a new Israel. Israel starting over again. Israel has not been what Israel should be. We're starting a brand new Israel. So what does he do? He gathers 12 disciples, representative, obviously, the 12 heads, 12 tribes of Israel, gathers these guys. We're told later on that Jesus starts his very first miracle of public ministry um, at a wedding. He turns water to wine. Interesting thing about Jesus, he never travels outside of his own country. Um, probably the longest distance from around uh, Galilee to Jerusalem was probably around 37, maybe 40 miles. Not very far. So when you consider that, Jesus did not travel that much throughout his life at all. Never goes outside of his outside country. I mean, he goes to Samaria, which is sort of like another country, but it's really not. It's within the same region. Jesus never writes a book, never goes on a talk show, never sets up a web page, never does any public type, you know, massive crusade healing type stuff. He's just a very humble man who gathers a bunch of people, teaches in synagogues, teaches in open places, 
He performs miracles, healings, exorcisms. Ultimately, what happens is Jesus begins to teach and communicate one of the main things or messages that He communicates is that He happens to be Israel's long-expected Messiah. And what happens, I also want to separate this, because Jesus then goes on to communicate that He is also Israel's God. Really important. I think sometimes for us, 2,000 years of history go by, we think Messiahship also means deity. Not so in first century. We think Jesus, when He says, I'm the Messiah, that also means, I'm God. That's not what it meant first century. But what Jesus is doing first century is He's taking two radical strains of thought. One thought is that God would send a representative or God would send a person in the lineage of David. He would be a king. Messiah literally means anointed one. Okay? You're wondering, like, what does Messiah mean? Messiah means anointed. They would take a king pour oil on his head, that action of pouring oil on a guy's head was called anointing. Alright? So it's the idea of being a king. But the also aspect, or the also another prophecy that they were expecting or leaning upon was that one day God, God Himself, would come back to Zion. Alright? Which is sort of like their hometown. It was the city of David. So here's what Jesus does, is He takes the strain of thought that says, Israel is looking for the Messiah. And he takes a strain of thought that says Israel is looking for their God. He says, that happens to be one and the same. It's all me. But Jesus communicates that his life. I'm the Messiah. And I also happen to be God, which is beautiful. Because what he's indicating is that God himself is going to be doing the action of saving his people. Who he himself has condemned because of their sin. Okay? Or if you want it another way, the hand that wounds is also the hand that heals. Jesus says it's all fulfilled in me. Last thing we also see, um, merging a few prophecies together, that he was a man of peace that really was familiar with grief. That was what Jesus' life, in a nutshell, was like. Okay, again, I want to ask another question. Did Jesus suffer? Did Jesus suffer like us? What was his life like? Did he suffer? I mean, if he's in flesh and bone, did he suffer? I mean, if he's God, did he go through difficulties? Did he have hardships? Did he feel pain? Yes, and here's the way I want to answer this. First of all, I want to go 750 years before Jesus lived. So prophecy out of the uh, book of Isaiah. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 53. He says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, it's a prophecy about Jesus. And he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. And one from whom men hid their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. And so the issue is this, is that did did Jesus suffer? Well, Isaiah seems to indicate very clearly that whoever would be the Messiah, whoever is fulfilled in this prophecy, would definitely suffer and suffer tremendously. Okay? I want you to also take a look in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says this, that we have a great high priest who has passed the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, and he says, let's hold fast our confession. Um, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. This is important to understand because sometimes people think about God as being 
very, very distant from us. I think that's one of the enemy's biggest lies to us. Right? We go through difficult times and hardships and suffering confront us. One of the first things that the enemy seems to plant in our mind are little thoughts like this. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Right? But I'm sure none of you have ever felt that or have ever even thought that, right? But the reality is this is not true. Because Jesus does. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He's talking to a group of people that are Christians that are being tempted to walk away from Christ. They're being tempted to go back to the things that they had known formerly, which are basically religious activities, to walk away from this living, breathing relationship with Christ because what was happening is that they were confronted with temptations, they were confronted with all sorts of uh, pressures externally, uh, there were all sorts of uh, persecutions that were happening, and the people were being tempted you know, with thoughts like this. Do we really want to continue to follow after Jesus? Do we really want to keep following after Him and pursuing Him? You know, Maybe God has no clue what we're going through. I mean, These are people, some of which actually believe we're, we're actually paying physically for belief in Christ. That's something we in America, we really just don't even understand. I mean, what it means to actually say, hey, I believe in Jesus, and take a beating for that. Alright? We, we just have a hard time even grasping that. Like, I believe in Jesus, and you're like, you can no longer work at your job anymore. Find another Taco Bell job. Alright? And we're just like, really? I mean, that, I mean, we don't understand what it means to actually have physical harm inflicted upon us because of our faith in Christ. These people were... And they were asking these questions. Does God really know? Does God really care? Is God really with us? Does God even feel my pain? Does God even hear my prayers? Does God even hear my, 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 my sorrow? Does God know? And the writer of Hebrews basically says, listen, you guys have a high priest that knows exactly what you're going through. The reason? The incarnation. He became a man. He became a man. He felt your pain. He knows what you're going through. The next slide, what we're going to see is a few other items in which it talks about. These are some things that Jesus experienced. He experienced what it meant to, to be misunderstood. He knew what it meant to be lied about, to have people spreading rumors around him, about him. Right? I mean, these are things that we deal with daily, right? You know, we know what it feels like to have somebody slander us, right? To, to, to say something bad about us, or send emails around, or to send texts around. Did you hear what so and so did? Can you believe that? I mean, the rumor mill. We live in the middle of that. We know what that means. Uh, Jesus knew what it meant to be tempted. He knew what it meant to be separated from those that He loved. He was living really in the sense of feeling the pain of what it means to have someone that He loves die.